Welcome to the sermon podcast feed of Liberty Church Collingswood, where we want to live, speak, and serve as the very presence of Jesus in Collingswood and surrounding boroughs, or wherever God has placed you. Find us at libertycollingswood.org. Part of our mission is preaching sermons, so here you go. Keep in mind that these messages are designed to bring the timeless message of Jesus to bear in specific contexts to specific people, the whole eternal word, changing worlds thing. Would you hear good news here? Bon appétit. We are now addressed by the living Lord through his living word. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. And then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to shore. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, You are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore, The well was called Bir Lahai Roi. It lies between Kadesh and Barad. And Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's take a moment to pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for gathering us here this morning. And we pray that you would give us your Holy Spirit to illumine this, your very word to us. We do come from different places of faith and doubt, success and sorrow. Thank you that no matter who we are, where we've been, Jesus welcomes us by grace. So would we be brought into your presence and molded for your purposes in this time, we pray and plead with you in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. An important part of my job, even though it's not probably the most fun part of my job, is conducting exit interviews with people that are choosing to move on from Liberty Collingswood. In my heart of hearts, those are conversations that are easy enough for me to duck. I don't want to 
it, it might hurt my feelings. So, but it's always good. And even when there are disagreements or we're not on the same page and we see things differently, there are always, always, always things that I can and should learn from those conversations with those that are willing to have them with me. Here's an example of an early exit interview. A couple years after we launched, there was a guy that said, hey, just want you to know we're moving on from Liberty Collingswood. And I said, hey, I'd love to have a conversation about it. You know, we're not a cult. We don't keep people here. How come? And so he was willing to have a conversation. And he said, liberty has changed. And I asked him, how? And he said, when the church first launched, and he wasn't totally, totally on the original launch team, but was there in the early stages. He said, when we launched, we were all about outreach and doing people for outsiders, those that, that aren't in the church. But then he said, as things have morphed and changed and as the church has grown little by little, I feel like we're doing more and more things for people that are on the inside and people that are already here. And so the programming and the social events seem to be shifting from outside more to inside. And this isn't exactly what I'm looking for in a church right now. We're going to move on. And I said, I appreciate that. Thank you. And I took to heart. I took seriously that feedback. And I gave a little bit of dialogue along these lines. I said, well, there are probably two sides to this coin. On one side, oh, the church, after it launched and we were a church start, out, more outreach in the beginning, it seems like a little bit less now. A little bit, that's the nature of the beast. And it's actually not unusual for some people when a church starts to move on after those first couple of years exactly for that reason. But I explained it to him like this. When the church started, there wasn't anybody inside the church. And the standard joke there is that the launch team of Liberty Collingswood was about half and half between people that had the last name Anger and people that did not have the last name Anger. And by God's grace, I said, we've grown year to year thus far, and there are now people that are inside the church. And for a church to be sustained over the long haul, we have to care for our own. We have to build some infrastructure. That's just the way that it is. We can't get around it. And even for me, more people at church means more people, more problems, more issues, more needs, more meetings to structure stuff out. It's just sort of how that happens. And I did say, hey, I think we are still doing a lot of outreach, but the shape of it has changed. When we started, it was more me having meetings, doing things from up front for the whole church visibly. But there's actually, I think, even more care and outreach being given, but it's person to person. It's not stuff that the whole church sees. And so I talked in that direction for a while. But the flip side of that coin, and this is why that conversation stayed with me, and I thought it then, and I still go back to it now. What if he's right? At least at some level. Am I turned to inward, either individually or as a church? Am I getting too comfortable? Are we getting too comfortable? Is there more that we can and should be doing? And I think the answer has got to be yes. And I think it's true whether you're here this morning as a Christian or a non-Christian or figuring out spiritual realities. It is an unassailable fact of human nature to pull in, to turn in, to associate with people that are like us to circle the wagons and make ourselves more comfortable in doing that. 
That's just how we're built and how we're wired. To one extent or another, it's how it is. But then it's good to look in the mirror every once in a while, and I can ask myself, and why don't you ask you, if you were too inwardly focused, would you even notice? Would it even register? We talk every week about the free book that we give by a pastor in New York named Tim Keller. He's written in another place, speaking of Christians that are too insular, and he puts it like this. And it's possible for any group, not just a religious one, to be too insular. It is certainly possible for a person to identify as a believer without engaging relationally outside of the church. Their relationships with non-Christians are largely superficial. In this case, believers fill all their significant relationships outside of work with other Christians in their time with Christian activities. They have not sought opportunities to learn from non-believers, appreciate them, affirm them, and serve them, so that regardless of what these Christians believe, those outside the church do not know they care about them. And what's more, when you reach outside of your comfort zone to people that are not like you, it's the nature of reaching outside a comfort zone, you become uncomfortable. I become uncomfortable. And you find yourself sitting there saying, wow, I actually need to make some sacrifices, sacrificing time or energy or safety or money, resources, space. And it's uncomfortable because if you actually are in a relationship, engaged with people that are not like you, for that relationship to truly be mutual, you need to learn. You need to adapt. You can't do the exact same thing because you need to accommodate who you are for the sake of this other person. And that can be deeply uncomfortable for us. And yet that's exactly where God wants to push his people, I believe. Are we for the outsider? Are we for the other? I'm talking about this because we encounter an outsider here in this story. She's named Hagar. God pursues her. God finds her. God sees her. And what shall we do? So two parts from here. Let's talk from this passage here in Genesis chapter 16. You might be wondering, why are we in Genesis chapter 16? Well, it's because we were in Genesis 15 last week. We were going through the book of Genesis here on a Sunday morning. So we have this passage now about Hagar, two parts, God's passion for the outsider, part one, and then the flip side, how God's passion for the outsider threatens the insider. Hmm. We'll talk in both directions. So God's passion for the outsider and how that thre threatens the insider. We encounter here at the beginning of the story, really for the first time as a character who's acting out and actually doing stuff, Sarai, Abram's wife. We've been reading about her, but she hasn't been doing a whole lot as a subject, as an agent so far until now. And it's a crisis point for Sarai here. She knows that God has promised Abram, her husband, I'm going to give you a big family and your offspring, all the families of the earth will be blessed, but she's infertile. And it's a crisis of faith. There's a misalignment between promise and present, so she starts to take matters into her own hands. Kind of we encounter Sarai here, very similarly to where we found Abram the chapter before. God tells Abram, Abram, this is going to be great. I'm going to give you a big family. And Abram says, I don't see it. I don't have any heir. And the closest thing that I have to an heir is that Shlemiel, Eliezer of Damascus, that loser, he's not even my heir at all, really. God, you're not showing up in the way that you promised. Similarly here, 
Sarai is wondering. So we encounter her at the beginning of the story. Now, Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. And then she takes matters into her own hands. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant so that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai, taking matters into her own hands. And similarly, there's another parallel here if you've been tracking with these stories to what Abram did to his wife at the descent into Egypt in the second half of Genesis chapter 12. There's a drought in the land. They travel down into Egypt. Abram is worried about saving his own skin. Is God going to preserve us to give us this really big family down the line? He tells Sarai, hey, don't say you're my wife. Say you're my sister. And he turns her over to, to Pharaoh. Ironically, similarly, this is a little bit what Sarai is doing here. Not trusting the promises of God. What can I do to move this plan forward? And enter the Egyptian servant, Hagar. Verse 3 again. So, after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. Now, surrogate parentage in this context in the ancient Near East, it actually was not super unusual. For the sake of a line, if there is a couple that's not able to have children, you do bring a surrogate mother on the scene to have children and so perpetuate the line. But in this story, I think you've got to say, and this is what commentators are unified in saying about this passage, Hagar, powerless and unseen and hard. Hagar, powerless unseen, and harmed. It's not a coincidence that at no point in the story, at no point in this chapter, do either Sarai or Abram call Hagar by name. They don't directly address her. They don't call her Hagar. And not even in the internal conversation when Hagar is there, just between Abram and Sarai, they still don't say her name. It's just the servant, your servant, my servant. She is unnamed, unseen, and powerless. And Sarai is acting on her. She has no agency at the beginning of this story. Abram actually would have some agency, but he's totally passive right now. And so this is the setup of the story. And even if a custom like this was accepted at the time in the ancient Near East, commentators are also unified in saying that God actually is not on board with what's going on here. There are tacit judgments and critiques of what Abram and Sarai are doing to Hagar all over this story, including in verse 3 that I already read. There's an echo here of Genesis chapter 3 of the original sin of our first parents, Adam and Eve. The motions of, just as Eve the wife took the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil and gave it to her husband, Adam, similarly here. Verse 3 again. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. So God is judging what's going on here, and we'll get to a couple other tacit judgments in just a moment. But Hagar flees. Good for her. Hagar flees, verse 6. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. She flees, but she's found. She's found by God. Verse 7, the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to shore. 
And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress Sarai. She's found. She's seen. She's cared for. She's pursued. And this word find here in verse 7, in the original language of this scripture in the ancient Hebrew, this found is a purposeful pursuit, not just oh, the angel of the Lord, so do you come here often, was just happened to be walking around. There is a pursuit specifically of Hagar, and she is cared for. She is upheld. She's even vindicated. God goes on to say, the angel of the Lord said to her, and the angel of the Lord is a proxy for God himself here, so that by the end of the passage, it's not the angel of the Lord speaking, it's God himself speaking. Also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And an angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, your pregnant shall bear a son, shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction, wild donkey of the man, his hand against everyone, everyone's hand against him. He shall dwell over and against all his kinsmen. Vindicated. And so she will have this son, this line, another tacit judgment of what Abram and Sarai are doing to her, this line will trouble Abram and Sarai's line for a long time. God's daughter. We're again at the end of the passage. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. The writer here is being emphatic. This isn't just Hagar's son. This is Abram's also. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. Probably my favorite detail here, it's the angel of the Lord that calls Hagar by name. She's not named by Sarai, not named by Abram, but the angel of the Lord, Hagar. She's named, she's seen, she's upheld. And Hagar actually is the only woman in all of the Pentateuch who is directly given by God a birth announcement given to her here. So understand. That if you feel like you are on the outside, if you're unseen, if you're lacking power, God loves you, God sees you, God knows you, God upholds you, just as he does for Hagar here. There is more naming. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Bir Lahai Roi. It lies between Kadesh and Bered and Bir Lahai Roi, the well of the living one who sees me. Sidebar. I have plenty of friends who would say, and even I can feel this sometimes too as a Christian pastor, the whole idea, I don't like the God of the Old Testament. The God of the Old Testament is really difficult. There's a lot of rough edges. There are things that just don't make sense and don't fit where things are currently. It kind of freaks me out a little bit. And we've wrestled with this at a couple different times over the past couple of years. I affirm that there are a lot of rough edges when it comes either to the God of the New Testament or the God of the New Testament or the Jesus of the New Testament, the center of God's story. Those, those rough edges are there. Every context, every culture around the world and throughout the ages, interestingly, will identify different rough edges, different things out of place at different times. That's okay, but it is really, really rough. And understand that this God here, who aligns himself not with who so far have been the heroes of the story, Abram and Sarai, but says, I'm with the outsider. 
and with Hagar. This is the God of the Old Testament. This is the living Lord. If you're a follower of Jesus, there are enormous pressures on you right now from lots of different angles to be a cafeteria Christian and say, I'll take this, but I don't want that. I'll take that, but I don't want this. But understand, if you give in to that temptation, you lose content with the totality of who the living Lord is. And the God of the Bible is so big that you can find what you want and just take those things. But the picture of the triune God is big and messy, but also glorious and good, including that this God knows, sees, loves Hagar. So for you, if you have some measure of outsiderness, one way or another, and I don't want to make some kind of false equivalency and say all outsiderishness is exactly the same. It's not. Some are a lot harder than others. Totally true. But to whatever extent you have sometimes felt like you've been picked last in the kickball game of life, God sees, knows, loves you. Whatever the outsiderishness is, emotionally, relationally, religiously, racially, ethnically, gender, money, status, attainment, community, whatever it is, God sees and knows. And if you are someone that struggles with outsider-ness, name it before God. Name it before God. And know that God names you. If you're somebody who's not even sure where you are with Christian spirituality, let this be an on-ramp. God, here I am. I'm asking that you would see me and know me. And just as God sees and serves Hagar, the same call is to us to go and do the same. So God's passion for the outsider and how it can buzz the tower, how it can threaten insiders. So Hagar may have a little bit of pride after she becomes pregnant from Abram. We see that in verse 4. And he went into Hagar and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. But way, way more is Sarai in the wrong in this story, right? And Sarai said to Abram, I'll read it again, verse 5. May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. Then Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. And Sarai dealt harshly with her, dripping with irony. Because this was Sarai's plan the whole time. And when it happens exactly how she planned with Hagar, she turns around and blames the one whose agency she stole in the first place. She's the one that's doing Hagar really, really dirty right now, taking matters into her own hands. And I've been struck going through these chapters of Genesis, where at different points, and this is something that I wasn't planning on going into this fall sermon series, at different points you see these biblical characters, sometimes Abram, sometimes Lot, sometimes here Sarai, dealing with their own insecurity, dealing with their own insecurity in different ways. But when you are insecure, when I am insecure, when we're not fully trusting in who God is, that causes us to act out, and that causes us to to treat everything as a threat because we don't have enough. Have you ever thought to yourself, I'm not getting what I deserve. I'm not getting what I'm entitled to. I'm not getting what I need. 
but these bozos over here, they're getting too much. They don't deserve it as much as I do. I need more. The free book that we talk about every week is based on the parable of the prodigal son. And if you know the story, there's a younger brother that's distant from the father by doing all of the wrong things. There's an older brother who's distant from his father, same father, for doing all of the right things and taking too much pride in doing all of the right things and not being near to the father. It's older brother syndrome to say, I am upset about all of the good stuff that's happening to all of those other people. I need more from me. But when we do that, we're blinded to the needs of others. We're not pursuing the other. We're not going outside because we're too busy nursing our own wound. And look, everybody needs grace. Whether Abram or Sarai or Hagar or you and I, everybody needs grace. Hagar, I think if you would have asked her in this story, hey, do you need God to show up? Do you need God to condescend? Do you need God's help because you're not able to give yourself all of the help that you need? Do you need God to be on your side graciously? I bet she would have said yes. But then also in this story, I bet Sarai would have said no. Why do I need grace? Because I'm doing all of the right things. Older sister syndrome in this case. And look, the world continues to become nastier and more divided. It just is. A couple of recent researchers have put it this way. I think this is a reflection quote at the beginning of your worship folder. Talking about social media, I'm not saying you shouldn't use social media, but I'm just saying let the buyer beware. Let's be discerning. Indeed, the more we've learned about behavior on social media, the more apparent it has become that it distorts us. For all of the hope that comes from connecting with new people and new ideas, researchers have found that online behavior is dominated by homophily, a tendency to listen to and associate with people like yourself and to exclude outsiders. Social networks are bad at helping you empathize with people unlike you, but good at surrounding you with those who share your outlook. The new information ecosystem does not challenge biases, it reinforces them. Everybody needs grace. And one of the reasons that I actually have some hope for a world as fractured and fragmented as this, and hope for the church and the world, because grace is really good. And grace is the great equalizer. It equalizes everybody because everybody needs it. One of the mentors actually, I've been mentioning him a couple times so far, one of the mentors of Tim Keller was a man named Richard Loveless. And he talks in a passage that I'm about to read to you about Christians that become judgmental when they forget about grace. This way. Those who are not secure in Christ cast about for spiritual life preservers with which to support their confidence. And in their frantic search, they not only cling to the shreds of ability and righteousness they find in themselves, but they fix upon their race, their membership in a party, their familiar social and ecclesiastical patterns, and their culture as a means of self-recommendation. But if you know that you need grace, you're not better than anybody. And that'll push you to the outside which is exactly, again, where God goes in this story. The angel of the Lord, proxy of Yahweh, travels far, you could say, from the promised land all the way to the wilderness of Shur, verse 7, which is way far away from the promised land. And both Eric Mitchell and I, when we've been preaching through this section of Genesis, geography is important. She's way outside the camp, way outside the promised land. And similarly, 
that's where Jesus goes for us. Using locative, locational language similarly, the author of Hebrews, we were in Hebrews about Melchizedek a couple weeks ago, here again, Hebrews 13. So Jesus suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. On the cross, Jesus became the ultimate outsider. All the way to suffering wrath for sin that you and I deserve upon himself, upon his body, so that any and all that come to him would know forgiveness and renewal and an eternity of bliss and joy past this sad world to a one of peace. And just as Jesus on the cross went outside for us, we're called to follow in that same passage. Therefore, let us go to him outside. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have. For such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Do not neglect to go outside. To share what you have. To do good to other. That's what God calls us to do. And as you do that, and as relationships are formed, like I said earlier, you change. You have to adapt, accommodate, learn about other people to actually be in genuine community with them. It's hard, but it's good. And this is where we'll wrap up. I don't know about you, but for me, pandemic's been a little weird, right? Pandemic's a little strange. I told a couple people this this week. Here's what I perceive. As a result of tons of pandemic craziness in lots of different ways, for most of us, our circle of outrage has grown and our circle of care has shrunk. Our circles of outrage, what really gets our goat in so many different ways, has gotten bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. So we Hulk on She-Hulk, rage monster. Actually, She-Hulk isn't full of rage. Shouldn't have said that. Our circles of outrage have gotten bigger, but the people that we actually show up for and care for in our circles of care shrinks and shrinks and shrinks and shrinks. That's why it's time to build out. That's why it's time to take a serious look at our calendars and our pocketbooks and our bank accounts and whatever else. And look in the mirror and say, have I been inside too long? Even for me, one of the things that I've been wondering, and I'm not the only one that has poured myself into Liberty Church Collingswood over the past couple of years, but I'm one of them. And for so long, I've had the thought since March of 2020, preserve the church, preserve the church, preserve the church, preserve the church. The last thought when I go to sleep at night, the first thought when I wake up in the morning, preserve the church, preserve the church, preserve the church, preserve the church. One of the things that I'm going to talk about with the counseling that's built into my sabbatical in November is coming up. Uh, let's just be sure that Liberty Church Collingswood hasn't become the Moby Dick to my Captain Ahab. Preserve the church, preserve the church, preserve the church. But maybe I've lost a little bit of sight about what's outside. But it's building season. 
And let's go out. Let's serve. Let's sacrifice. Let's know the joy of pouring ourselves out for others more. So Liberty Church Collingsburg, who are your Hagar's? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Hey, could that have been the best sermon ever? Eh, the odds are strongly not in its favor. Still, thanks for listening, and be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. You can also check out our version of a preaching after party, the post-Sunday blues, a preaching post-mortem, on the same podcast feed where you can go backstage with the sermon. Live, speak, and serve at you later.